there. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. On this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. How many times have you wanted a quick health 101 class based on the decade you were entering so you knew what to expect? Well, you're in luck. I'm talking with longtime friend and hormone expert, Dr. Allison McAllister where she gives us a refresher of what happens to our body and our hormones as we move from puberty all the way through menopause. Dr. Allison taught me a lot about hormones many years ago. She's the lead clinical consultant for ZRT Laboratories, a specialty hormone lab right here in Portland, Oregon, where she also has a very busy private practice for the last 20 plus years. She's a regular speaker and educator on the topic of women's health, cortisol, neurotransmitters, and thyroid health. Hormones and hormone changes can be confusing. So it was an absolute pleasure to have her on today as we discuss all the changes that happen from puberty into your 20s and 30s through to your 40s and 50s and beyond. Here's a clip from today's conversation. Where we're seeing challenges right now in the population for women going through menopause now is that our adrenals are so stressed. So after the ovaries basically say like, we've done our work, we're going on vacation, bye. The adrenals are supposed to take over. They're supposed to have good levels of DHEA and they're supposed to then take that DHEA and turn it into estrogen. So you keep your levels high. But I know, and I know you know, like looking at people's adrenal function and looking at those adrenal tests, whoo, now that's a test that I think everyone should do in their thirties and forties, right? There are a lot of people that are barely being able to make cortisol and DHEA. So when they go into menopause, their adrenals are like, that's so funny. Like I'm not doing anything more. I've done my bit. I have nothing else to give. And so what I think what's happening and why menopause is actually harder for people is there's really no backup. I mean, women have lower DHEAs going into menopause than I think they did. And the stress, it makes it worse. That's just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Allison McAllister, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I have known you a long time. Since my youth. (laughs) Since our youth. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty psyched to have you on because as a fellow hormone aficionado and expert and nerd, this is going to be a good conversation as we kind of walk through all the decades for the women listeners. And I love talking hormones. (laughs) We could talk for hours, can't we? It's like a natural fit. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Well, for those who don't know you, why don't you give just a brief introduction of who you are and what you do and what you stand for for everybody? Absolutely. So I'm a naturopathic physician. I've been in practice for over 20 years, which somehow makes me feel a little bit legit. (laughs) And I currently work for ZRT Laboratory. I also have my private practice. So I'm teaching doctors all the time. I've lectured for A4M and PCCA and a variety of other organizations as well. So that's kind of where it is. And I got interested in doing hormones actually because I did my residency in cancer care, which seems like a total segue, but actually a lot of patients who go through cancer treatment end up with a lot of hormonal imbalances. And so in my quest to learn more about that, I just sort of found my way into the hormone world. So it's been really fun. I've been doing it for a lot of years. A lot of years. I went to school for the listeners. I went to school with her sister and I learned, so she's a little bit older, a little bit further ahead of us in school. And or when she'd already graduated, we were in school and yeah. I have learned, I learned a ton from you. I mean, I remember being really young <laughs> and learning from you and all your expertise. So 
This is really exciting for me to have you on and to see your face and to have you educate everyone who's has a big interest. Yes, I often get told, could I just hang out with you and listen to your conversation? So this is a way that people get to hang out and listen to our conversations that we can have because we do these kind of things all the time. I know, like the little fly on the wall. Yes. This is good, right? Because what happens is that, and I'm sure you get this in your patient practice or with practitioners, women are like, I wish we had a refresher course. Like, yeah, we, I went through puberty and I learned maybe something around sex ed. Where's the handbook? Where's the handbook? I don't understand. Nobody told me. In fact, I read on all the time. I read it. It was a Reddit thread. And it was, what do you wish you knew as a woman that you never got told? And so many women were like, I didn't know anything about menopause. Nobody taught me about fertility. I didn't understand the menstrual cycle. I mean, just really basics, basics that you and I think are basics. And a lot of women, and it was very upvoted. A lot of women were like, me too, me too, me too. Even basic anatomy. I mean, to me, that's like such a segue, but there are a lot of women and even more men that have no idea about even just basic anatomy, how our bodies work. And it's so amazing they do. Which is why I love, honestly, the, I mean, there's good and bad to social media, but some of the good are, is this information, this education or the graphic of people who point out the difference between the vulva, the vagina, the labia, the urethra. (laughs) You know who I actually give credit to opening up that whole world is actually Gilmore Girls. I'm a pretty firm believer that most of standard of care in medicine in general happens because of television and television commercials. But I feel like Gilmore Girls shows like that, where they had girls talking about things like periods and their bodies really opened it up because certainly when I was little, we didn't even talk about it. Right. And when it comes to, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about menopause and things like that. Like Every 10, 15 years, it's a whole new group. And you'd think that people would learn from the people ahead of them. And and that's just not the way it works. It's sort of like brand new to a whole population every 15 years. Yeah, I 100% agree. So let's start. Let's start at the basics. Let's start. Let's start young. You're in puberty. The beginning. Yeah. What's happening in puberty? Absolutely. Well, even before puberty, we have adrenarche, which people don't even recognize. So your adrenals start waking up. That's when kids start getting stinky. Frankly, that's your fourth, fifth graders who have to start learning about things like deodorant and body hair and what's happening. I mean, basically puberty is the start of the process of hooking up all these anatomy pieces to become functional, right? So it starts and it's developing but it's kind of that hooking up of the brain to the ovaries, to the testes, getting that those body systems in sync and cycling and then fully developing the secondary sex characteristics. And that starts now on average, it's starting super young. So it's starting on average 11 in girls and in boys, it's 12. It's actually not even considered abnormal if it's as low as eight and nine, which I think is crazy. Now, now in the 1900s, it was 16. So that's how it tells you, but there's been this, what I think of as the sliding baseline of everyone's doing it. So therefore it's the new normal idea of precocious puberty. And when is it normal? And I think that's a mistake in medicine because there's reasons why we're developing faster We don't understand it. There's a whole bunch of things. It's nutrition, it's body weight. It's also probably chemicals, but we are seeing kids develop younger and younger. What is the cutoff for, what is precocious puberty, first of all? And what's the cutoff? Yeah, so, oh, I apologize. So precocious puberty is basically signs of puberty before typically would be average. Believe it or not, it's anything younger than eight. So that would be like noticing pubic hair in a four or five-year-old in a four or five-year-old developing breast buds. And many times we never discover the reason why it happens. But certainly if people notice that, they should definitely get help for their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And then what, like somebody, let's say somebody's listening and they have somebody, their daughter is going through puberty right now. Yeah. What are the things they can watch out for? Every is, are when their periods come, are their periods regular? Like what are the mood swings about? Why does their face break out? Like all the things. (laughs) Right, all those things. Right. Well, everything's just sort of getting going. And by the way, it's okay. Like it's not considered abnormal to not even have a period before you're 18. So there's a young cutoff. There's also an older cutoff. So what it is, is like your body's figuring out how to hook these things up. It's got to handle all of a sudden these hormones that are surging and falling. 
Now, these hormones are also neurotransmitters. So they're changing your serotonin and your dopamine levels. They're going up and down, up and down. And you're new to that. So your body's figuring that out. Your liver is trying to figure out how to detoxify this. At the same time, your liver itself is changing its detox pathways. So all of this is a big stress on the adrenal or the adrenal, the ovarian complex and the whole ovarian hormonal or testes hormonal thing. And the skin and everything is kind of freaking out. I mean, your skin freaks out. It's changing the microbiome of your gut. It changes the microbiome of your skin. And then of course, your brain is also having all these ups and downs of hormones. So mood-wise is all of a sudden you've got a little kid who has androgens, right? And you can kind of think of the stereotype of roid rage. And that's kind of your teenagers, right? Like their brains are under the influence of these hormones and their brains are developing and they're getting developed because of these hormones as well. And there's just huge surges and then they're gone and then there's surges and then they're gone. So when people start their periods for girls, because we're mostly going to be talking about girls, you're going to start and they are not going to be regular. We don't expect them to be regular until they're 20. Usually after about two or three years of having periods, people will become regular. That's just sort of the guideline, but it's potentially two or three years. It's not overnight. And do you get the question of, should I test? My daughter is 14 and her cycles are irregular. Should I test? Should I do something? Should I put her on a detox? Oh, right. Do I need to worry about this? And the answer is no. So do you need to test? To me, you test because there's symptoms happening that you need to have answers as to what's happening. Oh, she's moody. That's not a reason to test to me, right? Oh, she has irregular cycles. That's not necessarily a reason to test. Now there's a spectrums of that, right? If you have a young girl who had regular periods and they've gone away, that's a different story that needs to be addressed. But a young girl who's having super irregular periods, a little bit moody, do they need to test? They may benefit from it, but a lot of times they kind of don't. Uh, Where they benefit it, and I know uh, we're going to touch on it, is if you're seeing some signs of big hormonal imbalance problems, like things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, that can actually happen from the very first time you have a period or potentially endometriosis or potentially like severe PMS or PMDD, like then you might get benefits from testing. The biggest other hormonal thing that you often test in teenagers hormonally is actually their thyroid. That's a big time that the thyroid gets challenged by hormones and it either passes and does okay, or it actually fails. So that's one of the key times that thyroid problems show up. So always a good idea to check thyroid if things are going on. And is there, are there things that you coach parents on to help, (laughs) like help make this transition easier? Is it And a lot of it, I think you're probably going to say is around diet and lifestyle and exposures and things like that. But (laughs) it's so annoying, isn't it? It is. is, But, you know, I mean, the thing is, is I think just talking about what's normal is actually a big help for kids. Mm -hmm. Having outlets that they can deal with their emotions in a healthy way, having other people they can talk to other than their parents about what's happening to their bodies, I think is a huge help for teenagers in developing this. As far as like, How do you intervene? Yeah, there are some great herbs that can help regulate periods. A lot of times you're just trying to help the body detox properly. So things like making sure people aren't constipated, making sure kids aren't iron deficient can make a huge difference in how they process their hormones. And then acne is always a very big one. My two pearls that I love to prescribe for kids with acne is clay masks and uh, saunas or steam rooms make a huge difference. And then getting out in the sun. Those three things make a huge difference for dealing with acne. That's amazing. And clay masks, at the very least, is generally very affordable and very accessible. Super affordable. Yeah, you can get, I mean, you can even get like the bentonite comes in capsules, like a hundred capsules. All you need is one little capsule and like a little shot glass of water. You put that on your skin after 15 minutes, you feel like your face is going to fall off. You go ahead and rinse that off and it just dries up and kind of pulls out those oils. Cause once again, the oil glands, the sebum are kind of freaking out a little bit about all this hormone situation that's happening. And I love too, that you said your first suggestion was giving kids a safe place to talk about this and to explain what they're going through. But that's actually a big reason why I'm having you on today, because as you and I were talking offline beforehand, 
we have found that a lot of people don't know. They actually don't have a good grasp around anatomy or physiology or what's going to happen next, or their own puberty was really quite rough or traumatic or symptomatic. And so it can be hard for them to talk with their preteen or teen going through this. Well, and I think there's this, everyone's stressed out. Everyone's sort of responding to this. And also we sort of allow our children to talk about some of these things in a way that maybe we didn't learn how to do that as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so some parents are like, I don't know what to do with this very moody thing. There must be some way to smooth this out or make this. And this is normal. I mean, I think the biggest thing is to have sympathy and empathy, but to know that your children's brain are under the influence of estrogen and testosterone and their prefrontal cortex is still developing. So we humor, we support, but know this big emotion one way is going to swing the other way (laughs) in another day or two. And I think the biggest thing is getting kids involved in sports and activities where they're with groups and kind of channel because exercise and team building, all that stuff actually really helps them with their hormones too. Right. Yeah. Right. And the prefrontal cortex, I love to say this, is a lot around our executive function. Yes. And it's the reason our preteens and our teens just quite honestly make stupid decisions because they don't have the executive function. No, but they've got the passion, right? To think that through. I'm always like, think that through. Right. Yes. They have the passion to go for things, the impulse, the the gumption, but they don't have the thing to think about what's going to happen next. Yes. Right. Right. At our house, we are the number one rule in the house is don't be stupid. Right. right? We just kept it really easy. Don't be stupid. And the number two rule is if you have to think about it, it's probably stupid. So don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Good rule. (laughs) That's a really good rule. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So now we're beyond puberty. We're getting a little older. We're in our 20s and 30s. This is the time we're thinking maybe or maybe not around fertility, but you'd also mentioned PMS, PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PCOS, endometriosis. Tell us about this area, the 20s, 20s heading to 30s. Yeah. So like what happens then? So I will say before we leave puberty behind, one of the things to be aware of is that in the puberty years, that's where if you have a functional problem with your bits, okay, like you don't have, you have abnormal testicles or you have abnormal uterus or you, that's when that shows up, right? So if things are weird, get help for young girls that can be like even bleeding disorders sometimes aren't diagnosed till them. In the twenties and thirties, it's all about function. Mm. Okay. So now Mm -hmm. our problems are less structural. They're more about how things are functioning. The brain's hooked up to the ovaries. So now the question is, is that process happening smoothly? Are the hormones being produced at the right level? Are they being produced at the right amount at the right times? So PMS is very common. PMDD is basically severe PMS that alters your quality of life every month. And some of these things are because of hormones and some of these things are because of the interactions of hormones as a neurotransmitter in our brain and how that works together. So PMS has totally normal body physiology, but it's an abnormal brain response to that abnormal or that normal physiology. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, on the other hand, is totally different. That is a spectrum of disorders that involve high androgens. So an androgen is testosterone or DHEA. Those are made by the ovaries and the adrenals. And so what you have with PCOS is this situation where you have a high testosterone, oftentimes a high DHEA, and along with that high insulin. And in fact, it's the insulin that drives the testosterone a little back and forth, but basically the insulin drives the testosterone. So what happens in that situation, you have someone where they're getting all this testosterone messaging. They don't have the estrogen messaging to kind of balance that out. And then they have all this high insulin. And so what that looks like, because that's a very common thought to be about a quarter of all women, it's hereditary. There are hereditary traits, but what that looks like is you have someone with high testosterone symptoms. So acne that doesn't go away after puberty. In fact, sometimes gets worse at like age 18. You may have increased facial body hair. So that can be mustache, beard area around the areolas, nipples, midline, and then irregular periods that go along with that. And that period irregularity can be like, I don't even have one. I may have one a year kind of thing, or it could be every two or three months and everyone's a spectrum. But polycystic ovarian syndrome often comes up at this time in the 20s and 30s. A lot of times that's when people are also looking at getting pregnant. 
So some things are turning up as part of like their whole fertility struggle. Like, why is this and this working? I didn't even know this was a problem. So those are kind of the big problems. I would say uterine fibroids are also in that time frame that usually can end up being a problem in the 20s and 30s as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then endometriosis. Like, what are the symptoms? What do women say to you that make you think, ah, this isn't just cramps. This is probably more. Right. Endometriosis is severe cramping. It's often like puts you to bed non-functional periods. Now, sometimes it's not, but it's usually cramping that's more than one day with severe abdominal pain. And it's usually not isolated to sort of the uterus or the lower portion of the pelvis. It's often like full abdomen. It is hereditary as well. You see traits in families where multiple people have it. And that pain tends to be like the entire time of their bleeding cycle. And that's because basically you're getting bleeding into the abdomen and blood in the abdomen shouldn't be there. And so it hurts. And so you often have problems also with ovulation and then you have this problem with it. So endometriosis is an interesting one because everyone sort of thinks about it as a hormonal issue, but there's actually really fascinating research coming out that it may be embryological, which I find really fascinating. Can you explain what that means for people who don't know? Yeah, yes. And I apologize. Thank you for helping, Carrie. (laughs) Basically, it means like you may, it may be sort of leftover fetal tissue that's gotten deposited that should have only been in the uterus that's gotten deposited elsewhere in the pelvis. And what that means is the pelvis being all over your organs, the outside of your uterus, on your uh, bladder, on your intestines. And it's responding to hormones just like your endometrium or the inside lining of your uterus. So it grows when your endometrium grows. And then when you have a period, it sheds off too and bleeds. And um, there's lots of different reasons or guesswork as to why that happens. But I find that really fascinating research about it being embryological because a lot of people find it not, not as, although you can manipulate it with hormones, mostly your manipulations of hormones are actually in stopping the period altogether. So you try to limit the damage that it can cause because it can cause damage. I mean, this recurrent bleeding in the uterus isn't great or outside of the uterus isn't great. And then most of it is sort of trying to turn off the period is how it's managed conventionally. Right, right. Yeah. So in, when we're looking at this age range, yep. 20s and 30s, what kind of testing are you thinking about here? And like, again, I'm assuming whereas yes. puberty, maybe not as much, but more so here. This is prime testing. Exactly. This is like, okay, I have regular periods. I'm having heavy periods. I'm having like I have all this weird facial hair growth. Like now you're looking at testing estrogen and progesterone and balancing those out more, looking at testosterone. The adrenals and thyroids are always sort of part of that picture as well, but much more looking at how those hormones are. You may even do tests where you're testing all throughout the month to look at what estrogen and progesterone are doing throughout your entire cycle. Those are going to be much more useful at that time. It's not that you can't test younger kids, don't get me wrong, but a lot of times this is really where testing comes in to play because you're trying to figure out why are things not working as they should be now. Especially now that you're out of puberty. Exactly. In the next decade. Yep, they they really should be working. By your early 20s, you should be having a regular period. It can be as short as every 24 days. God bless you if that's you. And as long as 35 days, anything outside of that, really is too short or too long. And it's not quote normal to have that. And what it, what that means is that you're just not having an appropriate ovulation and then you're not maintaining a corpus luteum. And what does normal mean? Well, in the world of twenties and thirties, it's all about reproductive health. So that's your peak levels. You should have really regular cycles at that time. Which, and even, and you've talked about this before as well, whether or not you're looking to reproduce, you know, somebody's listening like, right, I'm not having kids. Heck no, I'm in my twenties, right? Like I'm, yeah, I didn't have kids in my twenties and thirties. And so, yeah, but yeah, no, I did not. And why do you care? It's actually building your bone. Mm -hmm. It's these estrogen, progesterone, these are major acting in our brain. They are working in our cardiovascular system. They are, I mean, there's nothing, there is not a cell in your body that they are not involved in. We have estrogen and progesterone receptors on all of that. So yes, it has nothing to do with whether you want to use your parts. (laughs) It's just a question of like, if those parts aren't working as predictable, 
then it means that there's those hormones are off and there's consequences for those hormones being off, right? And one of the consequences that comes up a lot is the idea of estrogen dominance or estrogen excess. Can you explain what that means? And like, as we talk about the luteal phase? Yeah. Yeah. So in general, this is how the menstrual cycle goes. During your period, you have no hormones. They're very low. Okay. And your body's like, okay, let's sign some eggs up, right? Now they're going to go through three cycles before they actually finally ovulate. But we're going to have this cycle during your period, usually three to five days, three to seven days, no hormones. Then estrogen starts to rise. Now, when estrogen rises, that is what ends the period is the rise in estrogen. That's the follicular phase. It's called the follicular phase because you're growing a follicle. So the eggs are developing. There's about five that are chosen for that month out of the group that was chosen to ovulate. So we've got five sort of our stars. Of those five, there's going to be one that has the most receptors that the body's going to say, this is it. This is our gold star. Okay. So we're developing these hormones. During this time, estrogen is climbing, 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 and then bam, it kind of triggers this ovulation event, right? So the egg is released, basically pops on out there. It goes into the uterus. Now, meanwhile, the endometrium in the uterus has been growing. So we go ahead and ovulate, and then the hormones are taken over, fascinating enough, by the scar that's left on the ovaries. Now, I think this is kind of like who would design the system, kind of interesting, right? But the corpus luteum starts producing the hormones. So estrogen now has dropped and it kind of just hangs out. It's kind of low, stable, not too low, but it's kind of stable. But progesterone goes crazy and it really looks like a mountain. So it goes up really high and then it comes down and it peaks around day 21 for an average cycle for about seven days after you ovulate. Progesterone goes really high and then it drops. So there's this thing called estrogen dominance that's referred, which is really a fancy way of cheating progesterone out of its due because really estrogen dominance is progesterone deficiency. And it's this idea that you don't have enough estrogen to balance or progesterone, sorry, to balance out all the estrogen effects. So estrogen's building tissue, progesterone stops that building and starts developing its usefulness of that tissue. So during the follicular phase, you build the endometrium in the luteal phase because it's taken over by the corpus luteum. We are now developing the normal blood vessels that you see in the endometrial lining. You're also developing ducts in the breast so that those breast tissue works there. So when you have estrogen dominance, you're not balancing that out properly. And you end up with this sort of what's referred to as estrogen dominance, which is really progesterone deficiency. And what are some typical symptoms somebody's listening? Right. So typical symptoms are kind of this estrogen building out of control. So in the endometrium, it means this lining got really thick. We're having heavier periods, longer bleeding times per se, breast tenderness, and then all the other symptoms that you can get when you get too much estrogen, weight gain, water retention sort of bogginess of tissues, much more common Okay, when it's high. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening can be like, like, that's me. I can relate. Yeah. Really common for every woman to have like one to three days, right at the very end of your period, your progesterone levels drop pretty dramatically. And for a lot of women, that progesterone and estrogen drop isn't kind of in sync. Estrogen's kind of still hanging out. So it's really common that there's a day or two where women commonly experience estrogen dominance but some women really have it all the time and they just don't make enough progesterone to kind of swamp this estrogen and turn that estrogen story off. I love that's such a great analogy. Turn that estrogen story off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Now we're in the next decade. Yep. Now we're in our forties. Forties. <laughs> After 35, actually for some women. Yeah, for a lot of women, I don't think they realize that. Yeah. Because everyone gets taught it's you go from reproductive yep. to menopause and there's no in between. And in fact, yeah. there's a hole in between. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the perimenopausal time, right? Mm -hmm. It can last from one month to 10 years. Great. Um, so some women start after 35 and really we have kind of the start of it. So the start of it is you ovulate, eh, maybe not always so great, right? You ovulate, but you're not making as much progesterone. So instead of this huge peak, 
oh, maybe you're kind of getting little rolly hills, right? So much more time of estrogen dominance. Menopause, by definition, is no period for one year. Now, I know so many women that go exactly one year and have a period, but it's one year. It can't be tested to find out when that's going to happen. I think that's very frustrating for women. But that time leading up to that is this time of basically the ovaries searching harder and harder for eggs. At the end of the day, it's basically a decrease in quality and quantity of those eggs means that the ovulation is becomes less common and also less sort of robust. I like that word for hormones. Um, so you're just not making as much hormone. So everything kind of shifts down a little bit doesn't have to shift down a lot for people to feel that. And the biggest thing is usually you get a lot more estrogen dominance because that progesterone has really downshifted. So you end up with people who are all of a sudden having more breakthrough bleeding, more PMS stuff, heavier periods, kind of all those things. And then I have to say one of the first signs that people really start getting it is because progesterone has major neurological and neurotransmitter interactions it's very calming. So a lot of times where people notice it first is their sleep and their anxiety goes up. Those are probably the two big things. And I don't think people talk about the mental changes that people appreciate then. And because I think I would a hundred percent agree. I think a lot of people focus in either like hot flashes or night sweats or maybe even the weight gain. But I remember when I was in practice and a lot younger, I'm in my mid forties now, I would have patients that would say, you just wait, you wait on your 45th birthday, you'll stop sleeping. And I was (laughs) like, what? No, I won't. Uh, Yeah. Like, I'll be 45 this year in 2022. And uh, I can, I don't have the anxiety, knock on wood, but I can definitely tell the sleep aspect. And a lot of times it's right. It's not all month. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. It's around ovulation. All of a sudden there's some night sweats that might be starting to creep in or some mood changes at that time. And then during your period or those days before your period. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the sleep and the anxiety, I always like to call it the anxiety because I think you see that a lot in women who have had kids that postpartum, Mm -hmm. everyone focuses on the depression, but postpartum anxiety is really common. And I would say perimenopausal anxiety is really high. So, and that's all because of missing progesterone, frankly. And do you test women here? Are you encouraging like, hey, look, you feel terrible. You're having all these symptoms. Let's work you up. Yeah. I mean, I think that it always comes down to what's appropriate or how you manage patients. I think certainly we know a lot of times it's like, oh, your progesterone is dropping. That's the issue, Mm -hmm. right? So where does testing come in? I think testing comes in when people don't respond as you expect them to, or things are just a little weird. And I also think patients like testing. I mean, they like to test to see that what's in their head is real on paper. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And having that as sort of a guidepost is helpful. Now in the perimenopausal time, it is true that next month can be totally different. But I think if you are testing and using that as a guide with the patient's symptoms, I think testing can be really, really helpful for people. And what are some of the big things women need to watch out for here? Like you early, we talked about in your 20s and 30s, the hormones are important because of brain or yep. heart or bone, et cetera, and building those things. Building but now we're things. starting to lose those hormones. Yeah. Yeah. But we still, we meet, we like to maintain them. <laughs> we definitely like to maintain them. I would say in the forties, we can tend to have uh, more of still maintaining things as much as possible for osteoporosis, cardiovascular health, still very important. Mm -hmm. We start to have some of the more consequences like uterine fibroids can still be an issue more at that time as well. And then I would say in that kind of perimenopausal time, it's a lot of funky bleeding is actually what a lot of women are dealing with. They're just dealing with periods that are just changing. And that change can be like, oh, it's a little lighter since I had kids my late 30s to, oh my gosh, I have a period every other week that's lasting seven days. So I feel like a lot of period management is happening at that time. 
Yeah, almost definitely. And I don't think that gets talked about either. You mentioned the anxiety, but I would have a lot of patients that are like, I used to be so regular. Yes. And now I get a period every two weeks or I'll skip three months. Like, what is this about? I'm like, oh, welcome to perimenopause. Yes. Yes. Don't worry. It can happen for one month or 10 years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I often get told, like people will say, well, I want to test like my FSH and LH and that's going to tell me I'm in menopause. And I, that can go up two or three years before you ever go into menopause. So you really true diagnosis of menopause is it's taken a year. And I will say you're over the age of 40. So if you're under 40 and you aren't having a period, you, you need to check that out. But if you're like 45 and all of a sudden you, it's been a year, you absolutely could be in menopause. The average age is 50. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go into that. Let's go into the next level. Now you haven't had a period for a full year. It's we ran out of eggs. You've month 13. You are considered officially menopausal. What is happening? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we have right now we've in this last year where we haven't had periods, we are, have been experiencing this drop in estrogen and progesterone. So what do your hormone levels look like? They look flat. They are not going up and down. They are just flat. If they go up and down, it's pretty minimal. That's pretty much a straight line. Now, interestingly, what hasn't dropped is testosterone, which is why going through menopause is different than having a full hysterectomy where those eggs ovaries have been removed because when you remove the ovaries, you drop your testosterone. But now our hormones are flat. They are kind of figured out their new low. The brain has freaking out because estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, these are all neuroactive hormones. They're interacting with serotonin and dopamine. But this is when we start getting hot flashes and night sweats. We're starting to get vaginal dryness, libidos going down, skin's changing, hair's changing, right? And like who designed this? I don't know. I mean, man, being a girl is hard. I'd like a word. Yeah, right? Like puberty, a puberty part two, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the same kind of things, mood stuff as especially perimenopausal, what's up and down, same teenage moods at the same time, right? So yes, I'm an older mom. So me and my daughter are going to go through menopause and puberty together. It's going to be fun at our house. (laughs) You've run out of eggs. So everything's kind of dropped and the body's accommodating to that. So I would say everyone knows hot flushes, night sweats. To me, that's not the main reason that patients will come to me and say, I need hormones. The main reasons patients come to me is because I say, I can't sleep Mm -hmm. and my memory is terrible. Yes. And I still work a job where I need my brain. That is by far like the hot flash and night sweats. You're taking the layers on, you're taking the layers off. Like people kind of accommodated to that, but the change in sleep is really, really hard. And that's often the biggest one. Now you also get immune system flares. So people with autoimmune diseases, people with inflammatory diseases, that gets worse too. And then there's all sorts of cardiovascular effects, insulin resistance issues that also get worse. This is not a fun time, but it's okay. <laughs> there's some, there, we can be proactive about it. We can be proactive about it, but that's what's happening. I mean, basically like everything's had estrogen and now everything is losing estrogen and progesterone. So there's a lot of accommodations that have to happen. Going back to the brain health, Dr. Lisa Moscani, the brain researcher, talk, she's actively looking at the female brain, especially as they go through menopause, because it doesn't get enough attention. A lot of no. our brain studies, of course, are on the male brain, and we're just extrapolating and say, well, the females must be the same. But we know it's not the same. Right. And every single woman going through menopause or perimenopause even has made the mention what is going on with my memory? Absolutely. What is, I used to never have to keep lists. Right. And I have to keep lists now. I walk walk into into the room. room, I have no idea why I'm even there. Yep. 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 Absolutely. All of them. Mm -hmm. And we didn't need, it's funny. Her, one of her earlier studies came out and was like, well, we think estrogen plays a role and we're going to have to do a lot more study. And uh, my, our colleagues who were all female and kind of the same age were like, yeah, we don't need a study to tell you this. Like <laughs> we're living it. We know it. Yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, you ask any perimenopausal woman and everyone does it. Now, I think where we're seeing challenges right now in the population for women going through menopause now is that our adrenals are so stressed. So after the ovaries basically say like, we've done our work, we're going on vacation, bye. The adrenals are supposed to take over. They're supposed to have good levels of DHEA. 
And they're supposed to then take that DHEA and turn it into estrogen. So you keep your levels high. But I know, and I know you know, like looking at people's adrenal function and looking at those adrenal tests, who now that's a test that I think everyone should do in their 30s and 40s, right? For sure. There are a lot of people that are barely being able to make cortisol and DHEA. So when they go into menopause, their adrenals are like, that's so funny. Like I'm not doing anything more. I've done my bit. I have nothing else to give. And so what I think what's happening and why menopause is actually harder for people is there's really no backup. I mean, women have lower DHEAs going into menopause than I think they did. And the stress, it makes it worse. So I think that's a big part of why, I mean, this memory piece has always been a part of that. But I think if we look back generations too, like a lot of times women's life in menopause was different. Mm -hmm. They historically social norms of those times were, yeah, you were at home, maybe played a little shuttlecock, maybe looked after the grandkids, but you weren't working. Maybe you threw a party here or there, but you weren't necessarily holding down a job and doing a 40 hour workday. Right. And that's really normal now. Yeah. 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 So I think it really stresses how much of that problem. And then when you do have lower androgens and you have lower hormones, like I think people are really having a much harder time with it. I mean, definitely, I would agree with you 100%, no matter sort of what your level is at your job, whether you are the tippy top CEO. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Or not. I would absolutely have female, my patients would come in and go, I can't remember. I feel like I'm not as sharp as I used to be. I feel like I'm struggling. This is taking me longer. Like what is happening? And you're 100% right. Stress, as we know, really affects the memory. So not only are you going through hormone changes, but stress is also just exponentially compounding it. And so working on, you can't get rid of stress, but what do you do to help manage it? What can you say no to? What are you doing for yourself, your diet, your lifestyle, nutrition, your like sleep, et cetera, et cetera. What can you work with to help improve this? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And managing that before you get to menopause, where all of a sudden your ovaries are going on vacation and you're left with whatever's left. And it's interesting because when I see people and we talk about options, which I think we're going to talk about, like, of what do you do? What are your options? Yeah. It's interesting to me that I don't see, I mean, symptomatic improvement for sure. But one of the things I've noticed in the patients I've had who decide not to do hormone replacement, which we'll talk about, is one of the things I really notice is this ability of the brain to multitask, to think fast and multitask. And I think if we were to do studies on hormones, that that's one of the things that hormones give us is this ability to hold multiple things in our heads at the same time, all the time. So actually let's talk about hormone replacement therapy. Are you a fan of hormone replacement? I'm a fan. (laughs) Me too. I am a fan. I am a fan. Now I, I will say like, I have patients who say, I don't want to do that. And I totally respect that. I mean, millions of women yeah. go through menopause every day and don't do it. It is a great experiment. We've really only been messing with hormones since the early forties. So it's not that long, but I am a fan. And the research around women's hormones and hormone usage and the benefits is unfortunately ongoing, which is great. But women right now have to kind of choose before we get those endpoints of those studies. So I'm a fan. Most of the research coming out has just become more and more and more positive, which is great. So a lot of our earlier fears of like breast cancer and all these things that were going to happen. In fact, that's not what we're seeing. So we're instead seeing lower cardiovascular disease and colon health and all these things. So I'm a pretty big fan of bioidentical hormones. And like you, I like to remind people that hormones is a broad category. Yes. And a lot of women tend to say, oh, HRT, hormone replacement therapy scares me. And I'll say, well, I think you mean, do you mean estrogen or all of them? And then they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize, is there more than estrogen? Oh my gosh. Right. Or I did terribly on the birth control pill. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And those are not, I mean, I think people don't understand, honestly, the medical literature gets it wrong all the time, but like all the time, the hormones in birth control are as different from your hormones as estrogen is from testosterone. In fact, most of the progestins in the birth control look more like testosterone than they do progesterone. So when women say like, oh, I don't do well with hormones, honestly, we know more about bioidentical hormone replacement than we do about any drug we ever prescribe because it's our own physiology. Right. 
Right. Such a good point. Yeah. Now, what else? Let's say somebody says, okay, yes or no to, to hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. What other things do you recommend? What are you talking to your patients about? Yeah. You know, I mean, certain things like I will, even in those patients who say, I don't want to do hormones. I'm like, okay, but can we do a little vaginal estrogen? <laughs> because that <laughs> solves a lot of problems for people in terms of libido and urinary incontinence and stuff like that. But I mean, I think that at that time of menopause, because there are these big shifts, we have to pay attention to things like what's happening with your bones, what's happening to your cardiovascular health. You Once again, we've changed hormones that always stresses the thyroid. So this is a time where that shift in hormones means it's good to kind of check into everything, right? Yeah. When you do your colonoscopies starting at age 45, this is when you go and get your dermatology appointment. This is when you're doing mammograms to have at least a full baseline. This is when it's good to sort of start looking at all those things because they all start changing, especially when hormones have shifted. I love that. I love that. It, honestly, it's just about being proactive, right? It's about being proactive. Yeah. Yeah. And realizing that it is a big change mm -hmm. and that that change is a change that affects every single cell in our bodies. Yeah. So even like dermatology, for instance, I often, I usually will actually encourage my patients who are menopausal uh, to get a dermatology, a baseline dermatology appointment, because you start seeing women who have had no problem with their skin at all. All of a sudden they're like, this mole has changed. This mole has changed. Oh my gosh. I think I have a basal carcinoma. And yes, it could be time, but I think we underplay the importance of hormones in regulating some of these things. Even in our oral cavity, I've had some biologic, more holistic dentists on, and they will talk about the shift in estrogen in particular and how it affects our teeth yeah. and our oral microbiome. Even the eyes. Yeah. Right? Dry eyes get worse. Yes. Oh, I know. It's really fast. I mean, the whole mucous membrane of everything really, really changes our whole microbiome changes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. That was fun, isn't it? <laughs> That's why I said, who designed this? <laughs> I know. I would like a word. You and I know this, but I think it's also fascinating to me and I'll call her out. There's a, a urologist that I follow on Twitter, Ashley Winter. I'm kind of a fan and she's a urologist and she's very passionate about vaginal estrogen as a urologist because it helps so many with urinary tract infections. But what I think is so amazing, and I just want to empower people to, if you're a doctor listening to this, to know that this is out there, but also if you're a patient, to know that your doctor may not know. And one of the things I was amazed at in her Twitter feed was how many doctors were like, I didn't, I had no idea. So I don't think people realize like, hey, my dry eyes could actually be because my estrogen's dropping, yeah. my dry mouth, right? My skin changes, like all these things could actually happen because I'm seeing this one doctor who actually doesn't even do hormones. Right. And we always say you can, for example, like you and I are not experts in everything. Right. We love hormones, but right. if you fall and hurt your knee, don't come to me. Don't come to me. <laughs> no. Right. If you need a newborn check, like I'm certainly not the doctor for you, right. but that's probably the same with your doctor. So if you go to your doctor and you say, I've been, I've heard Dr. Allison and Carrie talking and I would like to get my hormones tested, or I think this is a concern for me. And they're like, I know where I don't understand that, or that's not my area. That's okay. It's totally okay to find somebody yes. to add to your clinical team, to add to your personal clinical team yes. to help you. I think there is an inhumane amount of information that doctors are expected to know. Yep. And I think that's true for every specialty. I think that it is possible. And I think that we have to stop thinking about like, I have one doctor mm -hmm. and instead is I have a team. And the most important thing is that team is willing to talk to each other, is accommodating to each other's therapy to let different people take turns as to which is the most important and to back each other up and not sabotage it. Yeah. But yes, no, not everyone's going to know everything. And you, yeah, if you can't expect... I mean, honestly, it's inhumane. You can't expect a doctor to keep up with everything. It's just not possible. It is not possible. That's the truth. Yeah. Well, given that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, and we have been yes. taking a fun stroll over the last 45 minutes from puberty to menopause, yeah. what are the top maybe two or three practical, tactical things that you just want to leave everybody with today? I think that's good. I actually thought about, I was prepped. Okay. Number one, I think is you have to focus on sleep. Mm. You have to focus on eating well, and you have to focus on exercise. And there's no amount of pills 
that take over any of those things. Number two, some symptoms in women's health are common, but that doesn't mean that they're normal. Amen. So if you have something and everyone else has something too, that doesn't mean you have to suffer with it. It just means it's common. And the third thing is, is if you're trying to do something and it's not working, reach out, get testing, test, don't guess. It can save you. Yes, maybe it costs you a little money, but you'll save months of your time. And the number of patients I have that say, if I can sleep, I mean, how much is that worth to you, right? If you can sleep and be functional in your job, in your world. So reach out for help when you need it. It's there. And if you don't find it at first, keep looking. Those are fantastic tips. You really did think about those. I really did think about it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, tell everyone where they can find you. Where can they learn more about you? And if they're in the Portland area, where can they see you? Yes. So my practice is a little bit closed on and off again in Portland. Sort of the story I think that happens, but I am in Portland, Oregon. And then you can otherwise find me hanging up as far as teaching docs at ZRT Lab. So I do webinars, I do blogs, and I'm teaching that way. You might find me in A4M or PCCA or uh, lecturing around the country. That happens too. More now, perhaps a little bit more again. (laughs) Which is very exciting. And like I said in the beginning, I've been learning from you from a really long time. So Allison's a... Yeah, we've been chatting a long time. A great educator. So check her out at, Um, at ZRT Labs. It's something I'm very passionate about. Like I said... There's an inhumane amount of stuff to learn. So if I can bring it on, I get very passionate about stuff and I love to dive in and share it. So that is what I love about you. Well, thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.